Welcome to In Search of the New Compassionate Male. My name is Clay Boykin. I support this podcast through my coaching practice. I help people visualize and harmonize, find direction and meaning, or simply get unstuck. Contact me at clayboykin.com for a free consultation. Now here's the latest episode of In Search of the New Compassionate Male. A few days ago, I had the opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation with our dear friend, Dennis Slattery. You may recall Dennis is Professor Emeritus at uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute. This podcast, this episode, we talked about mandalas. We talked about Carl Jung. We talked about Carl Jung's art, uh, the artwork that Dennis is doing that's complementary to Carl Jung's art in his mandalas. And we explored how my mandalas fit into that picture. So let's join that conversation in progress. Well, you know, we've been talking, you know, you've been watching my mandala stuff and you've been painting what, nine, 10 years? About 11 now. Years? Yeah, about 11 years. And <clears throat> there's some parallels that I want to explore. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, um, when I'm reading Carl Jung and uh, Joseph Campbell, I'm getting, you know, they all talk about, you know, mandalas and they talk about quaternity and the use of quaternity, the four, you know, whether it's north, south, east, and west, or earth, wind, fire, and water, you know, but yeah, that four or quaternity is kind of the basic building block, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, and yet in a lot of Jung's mandala work, I, I don't see quaternity expressed. Like, like the one that I painted that I think you have, it's not even a circle. It's like a, it's like an egg shape. My version on the left and Jung's on the right, and he calls it a, a mandala. So okay. I think I think there's some latitude. If it, I think the image is after uh, any image of a mandala, capturing some imagination of wholeness, and something's complete. So I don't. I encourage you not to worry about having it um, literally always in uh, fourths, but I mean, a circle itself, length, mm-hmm. is a mandala. And you could fill it in and say, well, this is part of my, my image of my own individuation pilgrimage here. But um, yeah, and I just was so attracted by this one um and with my art teacher's help i I knew i could do it Mm -hmm. i was trying in this period in which i did uh maybe seven from the red book and i had already or was in process of offering two uh red book uh, gatherings at Truchas, New Mexico, 
um, I was just absorbed. I mean, the, the Red Book was like a vortex that pulled me really deeply into it. And I thought, I wonder if I can touch, even with a feather, Jung's creative process by painting what he painted. So that was what was behind it. And, you know, everything that I painted of his put me in such a calm place, feeling centered, even while the challenges of each one would have been insurmountable had I not had this wonderful uh, Linda Calvert Jacobson um, as my art teacher. And I remember in one of these, we were working on it, and she just stepped back and said, do you realize how complex this man's imagination is? And I said, well, I, I know that from his writing, but I'm listening to you closely about his imagery. And she said, these are, these are unbelievably sophisticated uh, works of art. And she has the ability to see the layers. So we, in the ones that I really wrestled with, we, you know, you always start in the back and you start from the top down and then you layer you see what is on one layer, and then you layer other, other parts of images and layer it again. And you may have four or more layers, and that's how it, it um, accumulates the texture mm -hmm. that it has. And I wasn't worried about Xeroxing Jung in my painting, and in some of them, the complexity was such that I, I said to Linda, I'm going to skip the, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to fill it in with a, a solid color. It's, it's, it, it's too much. Jung's particular devotion to detail in, in his paintings in the Red Book is just phenomenal. The patience. And of course, he took art classes. Uh, some were uh, under the impression that he just kind of put it together. No. He had, and I don't know how many classes he took, but he had guidance, but he also had the images. And he just needed some technical assistance to get them down as he was uh, imagining them. So the Red Book changed Jungian um, exploration. Um, to an uncanny degree. And then about, uh, it's been a few years now, the six black books that he wrote in that then he compiled in the red book. And I've been tempted to buy the six or maybe $120. And I'm thinking, will I really read them? Mm -hmm. I think I'd rather go back and reread the red book than start on the black book. But people that have read the black book say they're they're phenomenal. It's like his thinking in a germinal form mm -hmm. that gains a maturity uh, in the Red Book. Let me ask you a question. In these two images side by side, what is on the right is from the is the Red Book image. Exactly. Yes. And then on the left is your framed uh, study. Yes. It's, it's your study of Jung's 
uh, yes mandala okay yes i want to yeah. i'm trying to get to a place what was it that um you said that when you were painting it that you had this sense of peace well, i i find that uh, often in my painting but it was particularly uh rich with Jung, because other painters' works that I painted, I didn't know much about them. I wasn't even sure what, what if anything they wrote. But I've been reading Jung since uh, 1968, 1969, and often without comprehension, but I just pushed through. And now, and then as the years went on, you get a sense of the patterns of his psyche, how he works, how analogy works. So I'd never painted any painter's work from who, for whom I've read this much that he wrote. And I think that put me in a different constellation, uh, Clay, uh, because I had the literary background and I was able to think about mandalas as I painted them. And I had read the Red Book twice and then the reader's edition once i think and of course the reader's edition isn't the size of a volkswagen like the red book the full one but there's no that's it and it's it's beautifully done no images yeah no color they're just a, a few images in the back in yes know, black and white yes but that's right but no it, it doesn't um you have that one that you just looked at, which is his mandala. That one, I think that was his first. I think you're right. And I just want to tell you the story about that, because in one of the trips that Pacifica put together to visit Jung's home, and I remember sitting next to Rick Tarnas. We were in separate chairs. And both of us were holding one side of that first mandala and the original. And mm -hmm. Jung said something like, this is my first attempt at a mandala. I don't know what it means. You know, I just came across something um, that was speaking about Jung, that he had painted these mandalas. He went through this phase but it wasn't until years later that he came back and put the pieces together of, oh, that's what I was doing back then. Yeah. Isn't that great? Well, and it, it stunned me because you and I've talked before, you know, most of my life I've been drawing things, circles and quadrants and, and even doing it in business, you know, yes. just the quadrants, you know, in a month <clears throat> can be a circle and a square, just a square, or, you know, some combination of those. Yes. And I was doing this instinctively for business purposes to take a whole topic and then break it out and then put it all into context. Yes. And uh, <laughs> when I first read Joseph Campbell's talking about a mandala being, you know, the ability to put all the scattered aspects of one's life into context with the universe. Yes. Order with the universe in this form. 
I thought, oh my God, all these years I've been drawing mandalas. That's, I didn't know that's what it was. And, and it, they were, they, I bet they were coming right out of your unconscious. Out of my unconscious and instinctively. And you talk about the piece. Every time that I would get to this place where all these different pieces fit into context, that last piece would go in there and it would be this audible <sighs> this sigh. Yes. Uh, oh, at this moment in time, everything that's on my mind in the universe is in order for this moment. Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm completely with you, and you remind me, and I'm going to send this to you. It's five pages. <clears throat> it's Toni Morrison speaking about her creative process, and it's entitled um, Memory, Creation, Writing. And the reason I'm going to send it to you, I think you'll enjoy the whole thing. But what she says about how memory works through bits and pieces and bits and pieces start to accumulate into parts and parts start to accumulate into something whole. And she says in it, this won't spoil it, that when she was researching one of her works, <clears throat> she knew she had to stop reading about this historical incident because if she didn't, she'd never be able to write about it. In other words, you can load bits and pieces up to the point, and I've had dissertation students have this happen to them, more than one. They research to the point that they fall into paralysis. Uh, intimidation. I'm so loaded with other people's ideas, I can't find any of my own anymore. And so I've always wanted to write a piece in academia about the dangers of over-researching, which is a kind of overreaching of your topic that winds up creating writer's block, writer's paralysis, frustration. Um, so there's a real lesson here about leaving gaps, you I, know, places to breathe. I, oh, yeah. I, I so appreciate what you're saying. And I, I have to confess, I'm kind of going through a little bit of that paralysis right now. I mean, you know, this past year or so, every time I turn around, there's another book suggestion. <laughs> Tell yeah. those people to stop doing that. Stop doing that. <laughs> <Dennis>. <laughs> guilty. Yeah, guilty. I tell you what, though, every book that you've that you've given me or pointed me to has been fascinating. And good. Uh, with time, I'll be able to really sink deeply into them. But I wanted to go go to a point that I knew about Carl Jung. I knew. Everybody would say, well, oh, study his mandalas. And consciously, I'd say, yeah, I want to do that. But subconsciously or inside me, I said, no, I don't want to go learn about his stuff. I don't want to be on his path. I don't want to be replicating him. I, I need to go discover this myself. I've gone to this place. I've got to go further. Yep. And really understand what it is that I've got. Yes. And I tell you, it was in your book, that quote that I just sent to you, 
um, the other day. That was yeah, from uh, obscure order, I think. Yes, because yes. I went back to it after you sent it. Yeah, and it was in uh, at the very beginning of chapter two, and I'm going to paraphrase. Yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm going to. I'm just going to listen. In essence, what you were telling me was, or, or saying in there was, Carl Jung didn't write and do his work for it to be the stagnant opus that was just fixed. He wrote and did what he did such that it could be handed off and then further developed. That's it. That's right. And so for us to rehash just this, what, you know, Carl Jung's work, rehash it and not extend it is, is a, it's falling short of what his desires were. Exactly right. And so <laughs> what that paragraph did right there for me, Dennis, was it said it was okay for me not to study him until I knew <laughs> more about myself. And now That's a path. I can do that. I can yep. now I okay, now I've gotten enough of the essence of what I'm doing in the bigger, you know, like Howard Teich said to me, he says, Clay, your mandala, what you're drawing there, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and I thought, well, thanks a lot. No, I would no. say bravo. What you're doing is bigger than what you really understand. Yeah. That, at I, this moment. Yeah. Right. And pieces of it had gotten me to a place where, okay, now I can bridge to, to, uh, to young and say, okay, now what was he doing? And every step along the way so far, this unfolding for him, it's been what's been happening for me. Yes. And, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's humbling. It's a little bit sobering. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. it, was your, it was that paragraph in, 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 in your book that, um, that really helped me turn the corner on that. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. And, and that's the right approach because, you know, God bless scholars and <laughs> students struggling to get a dissertation done. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've written in the margins of a student's work, let's say a final paper on Moby Dick, and they've gone to Edinger's um, volume, The American Nikia, and on Moby Dick, and they start quoting Edinger, and then they quote him again. And I draw a line, I say, stop, I don't have a clue what you think. So stop quoting him and let me hear from you. And part of it's part of it's intimidation, part of it's, oh, I don't, I, I don't have anything to say uh, about this. And a part of it's a feeling of inadequacy. But I would tell them, look, you know, you've come this far. You've earned the authority to say what you believe. And if it's wrong, let's not worry about that right now. But they, they want to go to the nest. And I'm trying to kick them out of the nest so they can try to fly a little bit on their own. And they may, they may crash land, but they'll get up. Wow. But it, you know, it's anyhow, I share that with you because that, 
I saw that over uh, 30, 25 years of working with dissertation students. Well, I get snagged that way. It's like, oh my God, what he said was so perfect. How can I say it better? <laughs> yeah. But you took it to another step. It's not how do you say it better, but what thought does that bring in your mind? That's it. Where, do, where does your mind go when you read this? Not yes. how do you restate it. No, bingo. Don't restate it, but, but where does it take your no. mind? Yeah. Okay. Because then you're actively engaged in the process. The other way, it's, da it's data processing. Jung said yeah. it, and I'll push the data along. So one other thing I'll say about dissertation uh, students who uh, also showed, oh my gosh, remarkable advances forward. They really came into their own. And for many, I would say, and other colleagues of mine would say, you know, you really have tapped the voice of your own authority. I never heard this in your papers, but over this epic enterprise of the dissertation, you've done it. So one of the hangups or question areas that was uh, often uh, asked about is, what should I say in the conclusion? Should I summarize what I've said in 230 pages? And my response was no, because I've already read it. So I don't want to reread it in micro form. I said, just answer, answer this question. You come to the last chapter, boom. Next thing is conclusion. Answer this question. So what? So what? You've written 230 pages. So what? Why should I care? <laughs> I love that. And yeah. they say, well, oh, and I and I said, and keep your keep your conclusion to five pages. And answer the question, so what? Wow. Once it was framed that way, then they say, well, here's some implications of this theory or this work or whatever it was. And I could see this being used in business or I could see this being used in uh, undergraduate classroom, whatever. But they needed to be given permission to say what they've been thinking about and step out of the paralysis of this academic, um, this academic mindset that doesn't allow them sometimes to feel like they can be the human being they are. Well, you know, and it's, a, it's a trap. What you're saying is so empowering. It's so empowering. You know, two things. One, take his work or any work and then go to the next place. Where does it take you? Yes. And then after you've gone there, so what? Yes. And it's not so what in a sarcastic fashion at all. No, it's so what? No. So what's next? So what's next? You know, so, and, and then, <laughs> yeah, I want to go back. I want to come back to this, to your study of, of, of Jung's uh, mandalas. What was the, was the peace that you were feeling? Was, was it like, okay, this side represents something in his mandala and this side represents something? 
no seeing that in, in i'm seeing some beautiful art yeah. and i'm seeing the quaternity the, the 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 four yeah but i see no definitions of anything or or or, or symbols that i can relate to yeah and in painting uh him uh, his work um I tried to enter what the Greeks called mimesis. In other words, Carl, you've, you've, you've crafted this beautiful mandala that I want to enter into physically and embody by painting it or my version of it. And it's not going to be a Xerox. Some of them are closer uh, than others. But I want to feel into what you felt, if it's even possible. This is, but this is my act of imagination taken to painting. I want to see if I can feel what you felt when you created it. And, you know, did I ever hit the mark? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. That was the you blueprint. Hit, you hit your mark. I hit my mark. Yeah. So, Carl, you gave me the map, but I took, I, I went into the territory that the map, which is your painting, laid out. But my experience is not going to be yours, although I sense if the unconscious is also engaged, which it was in every one of his paintings and which it is in everything that I've ever written. My unconscious is always there, but I don't want to draw a line and say, mm, this is conscious, this is unconscious. Mm -hmm. I just want to have the whole experience. So when I looked at it like that, that I'm creating an imitation as he was, you know, his paintings are imitations of his own personal myth, collective myth, uh, historical myth, and it's okay if I tap that in the tiniest way and I'll be happy with whatever happens, even if nothing happens, which never occurred. Well, Something always happened. And I would submit that you're using the word imitation. What comes to mind is it's, you're doing a study of his work. You're doing an artistic study. Fair it's enough. Not you're not there to copy it. No, this isn't a copy. No, this is a study. It's what comes. It is what is translating into you and then flowing out onto that canvas through the lens that you're seeing the world. Yes. And so it may execute radically different if you put them side by side as copies. Yes. But no, yes. this your interpretation. It's your study. It's your interpretation of him. Exactly right. <clears throat> what he was he was giving form to his interior world. I think I was giving something of my form of uh, in the painting by means of my interior world um, mingling with his. That that was my fantasy. And you know it's okay that it's a fantasy; it has value. It has value. Yeah, it. 
What's coming up for me is you're in motion. With emotion, yes. You're in motion, yeah, emotion. In motion, yes. Yeah, you're in motion rather than being stuck or frozen. This, this, he, he's helping pr you propel yourself forward. Yes. If it were any other mandala, some pick some random person's beautiful mandala that they've drawn. Do you think that you would go to the same place? Not Interesting question. Uh, uh, no, it's a, it's a really good question, Clay. I don't know. But I think there are universal principles that are being um, expressed uh, aesthetically, uh, emotionally, and psychologically, that uh, when you enter them, um, I don't have to be a Sufi to read Sufi poetry. And I bring that up because I found a hardback <laughs> volume of Sufi poetry on a shelf this morning. And I said, when did I buy this? I'm going to bring it into my study and read. But I know that I'm going to be able to enter that Sufi imagination, being a Western uh, 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 citizen, because the, 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 the poetry will tap these universal constructs that Jung, you know, repopularized as the archetypal realm. And this, the, the archetypes come out of the unconscious. So that's what we all share. Mm -hmm. And if I knew, uh, I used to read uh, Spanish poetry in Spanish because at one point I had a pretty good facility uh, with Spanish. But um, it's always interesting too, to read um, uh, poetry or uh, literature uh, in a language other than your own. Mm -hmm. And I wish I had that facility. Campbell had a gift for, as a philologist, uh, for learning languages. You know, it's an interesting point because I think I was in fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade, when I uh, became an altar boy. Oh, did you? I was too, okay. And at that, that time, we were still doing the Mass in Latin. Latin, yes. So here I was, a fifth or sixth grader, speaking Latin. Yes. Yeah. Phonetically. I mean, I, I didn't know a word I was saying. Yeah. You know, I could go and read the translation, but as I was reading it, I, you know, I didn't know any of the words. But I remember there being a feeling. Yes. A sense of flow and, and depth, even as a little kid like that. It, it was yes. Um, I'd have to say spiritual now, but back then it was magic. It was magic. Yeah. No, and I experienced that too as an older boy for four years. And I love the fact that I didn't know what I was saying. Because it allowed, I now looking back and thinking about it, I felt I was able to enter the ritual of yep. the mass by reciting and, and the rhythm and the texture and the sound without knowing the meaning. It just, it just, it, it elevated something in me and really elevated the mystery of the mass.
Yes. Mystery and the mysticism. Yes. So and, powerful. And I, it's, it's hitting me that some of the mystery, you know, when we translated it into English, just using the, the Latin English and the Catholic. Yes. We translated it into English. I remember mother who Italian Sicilian. Okay. I remember her saying that she felt like we've lost something when we went to English. And I'm thinking, well, but now we can understand what we're saying. Yeah. She said, no, but we've lost something. She's right. And we've lost, we've, we've, we've lost the mystery by going to English. We've lost a depth of mystery. We, we may be able to intellectually understand. Yes. But it it doesn't touch the heart the same way. No. And the Latin was uh, was a, a global, regardless of what language you spoke mm-hmm. in your in your uh, history and your culture. Mm-hmm. It was a shared common experience that it, the mass was in Latin. Mm-hmm. And I can remember the kickbacks. I can't remember the year that it went to uh, English for us, but I remember the disappointment in so many people because something of that long heritage of the church was pitched in favor of uh, popularism, uh, making it more relevant, which was all nonsense. I believe. And the other thing that uh, I think worked on people negatively was when the priest turned and began to say the mass from the other side of the altar, looking out at us, rather than how we would look at his back uh, for all those years as he ritualized the mass and the sacramental quality of it. He, the, the priest lost something of that, I don't know, shamanic presence or, uh, you know, vested presence. And then what flipped millions out was when they started using guitars at mass. And I know people that said, I'm done. I'm done with the church. You know, it's interesting. So fascinating. First year, I never thought about the priest turning and facing. And where my mind immediately went was when he was, when we were all facing behind him and he was, he's facing the altar. It's almost like he's kind of leading us there. Yes, exactly. When he turns to us, now he's preaching at us. Yes. And it's, you know, can we be, can we be buddies? Yeah, it, it just yeah, it popularized it and bled something sacred out of it at the same time. Yeah, and to comment about the guitar, I can vividly remember because they invited me to come play guitar. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and so I remember sitting up there in front playing an instrumental and one piece was Simon and Garfunkel (laughs) and another was um, 
Rolling Stones. Oh, wow. They're great. And it was a beautiful <laughs> song. Okay. Yeah. But just instrumental. But I remember sitting and thinking, what am I doing sitting up here playing Rolling Stones and, and Simon <laughs> Garfunkel because it sounds pretty Yeah. in the midst of this mass? Yeah. And the, you know, the migration from the sacred to the secular happened in those installments. From my perspective, you know, others were happy. Oh, God, get rid of that Latin. I never understood it. I think that was part of the point that you didn't understand it, which then allowed it to maintain a certain mystery yes. about it without alienating us. I mean, I think maybe some took it personally and said, well, why can't we just have it in English? And I think that was answered for them when it went to English. And it was a palpable feeling of something now missing. Yeah. It was, we rationalized, or I don't know if rationalize is the right word. We lost something. Yeah, in the in the in the in the spirit of um, modernities, uh, keep it up to date. Let the past go. All of these psychological principles that we get burned into us. Uh, oh, that was back there. Oh, in the Middle Ages, you know what they thought. I mean, so to to modernize spirituality in that way was to, for me, put the word religion in lowercase r and the uppercase r gone. You know, that really resonates. And what comes to mind is that it was I think a bit of it was simplification so we could understand. But that takes me to something I read this last year sometime. The point was made that simplification is the first step towards ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah it may. It. Yeah. Yeah, to simplify. We could also use a less um, uh, kind uh, phrase, dumb it down. I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah, dumb it down. Yeah, so it's the, you know, yeah. the new mass for dummies in the series. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and somehow that's a virtue. See, that's the part that I find most astonishing, that this was all in the service. And, you know, I don't know numbers. But I wonder if um, a decreasing um, parish population uh, brought the church to a place where we've got to upgrade and upbeat this whole experience, or there's going to be nobody coming to Mass. Now, I don't know, but I would want to. It would be interesting to explore the population growth or decrease when all of these were uh, executed. Um, was it 
was it through the Second Vatican Council, which was 1960, 63, with Pope John officiating? Was it that Vatican Council that brought this on? I, I, I'm asking as a question because I, I, I don't know the history, but that I was a think, I think we were moving out of Latin. I would have been 65, probably 65 for me. Okay. So we're in the right decade. It's Yes, it's in that... Yeah. And I think the church was in an upgrade movement at oh. that council. I may Google that Second Vatican Council later today or probably tomorrow morning. And just to sort when when did the when did the mass shift to the vernacular of whatever people it was being uh, uh, presented to? Yeah. And see, something universal, I'm repeating myself, I know, but something universal dropped out. Uh, the sacraments themselves are, of course, universally uh, intact. But something in the, in the language of the prayers themselves lost that universality. I want to add on to that. Uh, Again, I'm reading so many different things. I don't remember where this came from. You, you it's probably, okay. You probably right. remember. Um, that this movement, let's call it simplification or, or moving just to English, losing the, the, the mystery and losing the mysticism yes. in some ways turned the West towards the East. Mm-hmm and into the to the mystical and the symbolism and everything that we would find in the eastern traditions it was yes. because we couldn't understand it like the the symbols or even the the letters you know yes the different you know um we entered then into this 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 realm of not knowing but feeling it it took us back into this place Yes, that that's part of the popularity. Because for me personally, I'm seeking, I'm seeking, I'm seeking, and once I get it figured out, I want to go to the next place. I want to stay in this space of not knowing but discovering. Yes, nice. No, that's a great way to say it. Yeah, instead of getting comfortable uh, in these tribal pockets that we're so locked into today, and we see how divisive and destructive that is turf protecting, um, which, uh, which is the perfect breeding ground for ideologies, mm -hmm. and then conversation ceases. Right. And then, and then uh, it just ferments and becomes more cankerous, uh, and people become more cantankerous towards one another. Yeah. It's really a vicious uh, plot line. In your workshop that we did there in Santa Fe. Yeah. Wonderful. Great, writing, great experience. Writing our own myth. What a great circle of people we had. Oh, that was one of a kind. It was. One and, of a kind. And I remember towards the end, 
somebody was talking about we or we were talking about polarization or people, yes. you know, the hard left, the hard right. And somebody said, yeah, but we're in those positions. And what we're not realizing is that we're illuminating the other. Mm -hmm. We're it's almost like I'm I'm shining a we're shining a light on one another. Yeah. I, I trying to remember the, the the essence of the point that was being made. I have to go back to my notes. Yeah, I mean, okay. I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna give that some more yeah uh, thought. Here's a, here's something I want to I'm gonna go I'm gonna go back to your mandala painting. Do you find yourself when you begin to paint feeling sleepy? You just how do I explain? I know this. When I got this book in my hand, just for example, okay? Yeah. I sat with it. And it was almost by putting it in my lap, there was this sigh, like, okay, I found it. Mm. I, I, okay, I know this is, you know, this isn't somebody talking about somebody talking about somebody. No, this is the somebody. Yeah. Okay, I found the original text or the original document. Yes. <clears throat> and, and as soon as I begin to read, it's like I fall asleep. Oh, okay. And it's different than falling asleep because you're tired of reading. It's there's something. Um, maybe there's a release of a of a, a level of tension. Right. Not knowing now, I know. <sighs> there's that. Yes. Sense, you know, yeah. And and now I want to savor it. You know, and I find myself even in your books. I find myself going back and reading a chapter over and over and over again mm. because it mm. feels good. There's something that's being communicated and it's, and it's beyond intellectual. It's beyond intellectual. It's deeper. It's deeper. And each time I know this happens to you, it happens to me that, um, you know, I never got tired of teaching the Odyssey, Moby Dick and Beloved. I did that for 20, 20 years. And people would say, well, why don't you change them up? And I said, no, because they speak so well to each other. I'm not going to mess up this constellation of these psychic and mythic fields. Uh, but then I started to teach the Divine Comedy and devoted the entire course to, you know, that epic. But I didn't want to mess with the way these three epics are always in conversation with each other. And it really shows when I read the final papers from students in the epic imagination. Mm. They're among some of the best writing I got from students because they entered as a fourth in that tripartite conversation. And there's your mandala. Yep. There's, I mean, there's the four parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they knew something was happening in them, not necessarily through any one of the works, although many would inflect their paper onto one more than the other two, which was perfectly fine, because that one really spoke to them. But I wanted them to 
write an intertextual final paper. Find some threads that you can at least mention. You don't have to develop them, but show that you're thinking in this polyvalent way. Um, yeah, and they were up to the task. I mean, they, they did really well. This just blows me away because you touched on something that I've not realized. So many times, if I'm reading one book, if I'm reading Young, I've got to be reading Ettinger over here and Slattery over here. I've got to have three books going. <laughs> Good. That's great. I have to have three <laughs> books going because I'm the fourth. You're the fourth. And that's that, it. Eternity. I that never ever dawned on me till just this moment. And not nor on me. As I was saying it, it came into my <laughs> head. Wait a minute, the student handing the paper in is the fourth forming the mandala from the three. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. here we here we've come back to it, and now both of us have another experiential uh dimension yeah. to to it yeah there's yeah <laughs> it's, it's a point to savor isn't it <laughs> Jeez. and you know when i'm rereading parts of uh, moby dick to prepare a talk for dallas at the end of july and my gosh ishmael <clears throat> is citing history philosophy they'll cite dante Kant, you know, his, and Melville published it when he was 32, has this massive encyclopedic library, library in his head. Mm. And he's always making, he's always weaving, 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 weaving. And it's magnificent to read and then see what we've, you or I, as readers of Moby Dick, can add to it. Yeah. And I think that's the point of the of that epic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Good. this has been fascinating. I, I know you're we're coming up on time, but what you've helped me do in just this short period is is begin to take the methodology that instinctively has come up for me. That's I learned was a mandala, as we learned about quaternity and and learning about the depths of that in the way that I express it, and then how you've experienced it with Jung. They're complementary experiences. They are. And and there's this yes. space in between the two that I'm working to, to bridge over mm -hmm. to your experience. Yes. You know, or to Jung's yes. experience. And, and, and what you're helping me do is is kind of understand it because I would other people are drawing these mandalas that are geometric and so forth and they're pretty beautiful work yeah yeah are they getting uh, we're all getting our own thing from it mm -hmm. but am I even in the same ballpark as what they are and what they're experiencing by by doing their design versus how my approach is where I'm taking words 
and symbols and putting them in spatial relationship to one another within the eternity so that meaning you know this symbol next to this symbol has a different meaning in between than if those symbols were this way or if they were this way yes and that's what it's playing with yes and see please no no you go ahead well what i'm but what i'm you're experiencing and approaching it from a from a fascinating direction that that I want to spend more time considering. Yeah, it's not this or, but it's a it's a yes and, and I think it may help me bring my model to work to the next step. Yeah, and you know, Clay, this conversation's been so wonderful, and the whole time I look at I'm looking at you and at your magnificent mandala behind you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a background for this conversation. Oh my gosh. I gotta share this with you. <laughs> you know, I draw it and it changes every time I start a new journal, right? Yes. Well, <laughs> okay. And it was at your, it was, it was at the workshop in Santa Fe. And I think I shared this with you that I finished this one. Yes, I know. Look at that. I can't believe you finished it. it I had, mean, and, and where you finished it. It had some pieces, some spaces that it just wasn't coming to me. And just being in the session, yes, there wasn't anything specific. Oh, this piece is going to go right here. No, but it was, it brought back up into me things that belonged here it allowed me to access that yes and it happened very quickly yes now here's the rest of the story okay finished i filled up this book and now oh i can see it yes i'm reading it wow (laughs) well you 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 validate or you witness what you just said, the power of entering the field. And when I teach and when I do these writing retreats or whatever it is, my attitude contributes to how much people feel they can enter the field. And when they enter it and they feel the energy of others who are already in the field or in process, um, I think everybody's imagination is ramped up. Um, I'd love it when somebody would say that the uh, Hotel Santa Fe, oh, I wasn't going to read, but I think I have to read this. I mean, there's the field inviting them. You have a voice too. Add it to the field. You don't know who might be affected in a deep way. And then we'd hear the conversations and you were part of them. um, Where people would say, what you read, and you've said it to me here a couple of times already, what you wrote or what you've said entered my field. And now there's a piece that is there that wasn't before. I mean, for me, that's the whole 
that's where all the juice is. Yeah. There's a point about Santa Fe that um, I'm just now realizing is that we had another common element that was affecting us all in different ways. And that was the altitude. Yes. We were at 7,200 feet. Huge. And you and I both felt it. Oh, boy. And um, when you started our session, our workshop, I want to call it a retreat. I mean, it's more of a retreat than it really it was. It yeah, I I like that word better also. And when we started and you commented, you know, say I'm, you know, the altitude has kind of got me here a little bit. Um, I remember mentally leaning in just a little bit more when you said that. Hmm. And I think the nature of the circle that we had assembled that you'd brought together everybody leaned in a little bit and i think it was because there was that element mm-hmm. i know personally i was like wanting to lift you up like uh you you know you've got this yeah i think there was another connection that yes. was really made amongst the circle agreed it wasn't you standing up and and you do, don't do that anyway, but it's not an instructor up there. No. We were all on common ground. Yeah. And learning from one another at your guidance. Yeah. And that is, I mean, one of the elements that I love about that is that I'm learning too. Yeah. Because I'm incorporated into what's going on, that's not controlling so, it. That's yeah. what's so engaging because you would express that when you when you're learning something it was it it was a shared learning yes and that's another level of connection that you you achieve in, in 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 that retreat well i'm just thankful that you um with a little prodding from your wonderful wife showed up. It was so great to have you as part of it. And I was so happy for you to meet a number of people that have been in my life as students, as teacher, Barbara, child, and Tony. And no, it was just, it was fabulous. You were meant to be there. I hope you feel that. I'm sure you do. I do. Thank you. Well, I'd like to continue this. Well, I'm going to we let, can. let yes. this kind of soak in and let me savor it a bit. Then I'll be ready for another round and, and yeah. take it to the next I'll, one. I'll always enjoy it, uh, a time with you, because we don't Xerox one another, but we're both in the same field. And then we, we open that field up, I think, for one another, which yeah. is the one of the great treasures of conver- real conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, brother. All right. Take care. Thank you, Clay. We'll Mm -hmm. talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Check out the latest episode of In Search of the New Compassionate Male on your favorite podcast station.